0: Welcome to the Climate Finance Podcast. My name is Jonas, and this podcast aims to mainstream climate finance by interviewing high level investors, researchers, and policymakers who have made significant contributions to the climate finance space. Please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. Enjoy the episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Climate Finance Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Todd Court. Dr. Todd Court holds faculty co-director positions at the Yale Center for Business and the Environment and the Yale Initiative on Sustainable Finance. Dr. Court is a co-editor of two notable books, Sustainable Innovation and Impact with Carrie Krasinski in 2018. And most recently, for what we're going to focus most on the episode, uh, Values at Work, Sustainable Investing, and ESG Reporting, uh, that was co-edited with uh, Daniel St. in 2020. So welcome, Todd. How's it going in uh, New Haven, Connecticut?
1: New Haven's lovely, as always getting a little cooler, and thank you for having me on the podcast.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule for this uh, podcast interview. Uh, what I found very interesting is that when, when really your background, so you, you started off in biochemistry, and then you transitioned to civil and environmental engineering. So back in the early days, how did you come up with that uh, transition?
1: Yeah, interestingly, I was trying to get a PhD in chemistry, and I was studying the remediation of chemicals in the ground, specifically pentachlorophenol. And I was looking at enzymology of the bacteria that degrade that in the soil. And I realized after about four years of trying to get that PhD, that what I was really interested in was cleaning the soil, not the enzymes themselves of the bacteria. And so my advisor very wisely at the time suggested maybe I should transfer out of chemistry and into engineering so that I could look, work on the application of those enzymes uh, to actually clean soil rather than figuring out how the enzymes themselves work.
0: Awesome. And afterwards, you did your postdoc and you were an assistant research professor. Uh, I'm not mistaken, from uh, 2000, 2005. And then you decided to go into consulting. H- how was the transition like? What type of work did you do w- as a consultant?
1: It's funny. I was once asked whether I'd do a podcast called From Fail to Yale, um, because a number of people seem to fail successfully when they're at this university. So that is an example of your failing successfully. I was a postdoc at the Colorado School of Mines. I was studying in situ remediation of, of oil and non-aqueous phase liquids and realized that I was never going to really be passionate about it. And so the funder of my lab, uh, Union Pacific Railroad, they had an opportunity for me to leave and go into practice as an internal consultant um, to try and remediate soils contaminated uh, or legacy contaminated by the railroad. So yeah, I went into consulting specifically in, in remediation and bioremediation of oil contaminated sites. And I never thought that I would go back to academia, uh, and I ended up staying in consulting for almost 20 years or before coming back to academia. Wow.
0: And how did that transition take place those tw- 20 years for you to transition back to Yale and for you to succeed at Yale, not fail? Well,
1: history will tell if I succeed. So, um, Again, I was not intentionally coming or trying to come back to academia. I had worked my way up and th- through consulting. So, I was an engineering consultant for a while. Then I determined that I could work into the sustainability and corporate management field. I started working on corporate sustainability reports, uh, greenhouse gas uh, accounting, um, and more and more with the investors for our clients themselves, because they were interested in in environmental and social risks uh, and having their advisors tell them how to implement sustainability strategies. And so I went to Europe for several years as a management and then sustainability consultant. come back to the United States and was working for a very large firm to kick off their new sustainability advisory division. And one of my goals was to really raise our profile in the marketplace. Uh, So I asked my team to look for positions, sideline positions, where we could raise our profile by affiliating with large brands. And so I looked, because I had the PhD, I looked at adjunct teaching positions and kind of I mean, perhaps humorously. I thought that this position at Yale was uh, to do one class per year online. So an adjunct part-time position where I could stay in San Francisco. And after I did the interview and was talking to the the hiring folks, they said, no, no, this is a full-time role uh, and it would be in person. So I went home and told my wife this and she said, well, there's absolutely no way Yale will ever hire you. We So we chuckled and we went on with our lies uh, for several months until I got the call
0: from Yale. And, and here we are. So that's really nice to hear. From your LinkedIn, you joined Yale in 2014. And then in 2017, the Yale Initiative on Sustainable Finance was set up. And I know Yale has a very long history regarding uh, environment. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, the uh, Yale School of Environment was set up in 1902 or somewhere around that time. So it's interesting to see now in 2017, this uh, initiative of sustainable finance was up so uh, how did that evolve and what was your role in it
1: yeah indeed there's a lot of history here Uh, the school of the environment as you say has been around for over 100 years uh, set up by teddy roosevelt uh, back in the day Um, it's actually the school of forestry uh, for a long time but there is a contingent of people uh, between the school of management which is our business school and the school of the environment that are really interested in this intersection of business and the environment so when I joined Yale, I was appointed as one of the two faculty directors for the Center for Business and Environment, which you mentioned. And I had a colleague, Dan Esty, who was the faculty director for the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. And both of us shared an interest specifically in the finance of business and environment. And so Dan and I set up this initiative, the Initiative on Sustainable Finance, which sits between those two centers. So what that means is that Our view of sustainable finance is at the juxtaposition of a school of business, a school of the environment, and a school of law. So our implicit assumption is that the barriers to moving capital towards more sustainable investments sit across those three disciplines, that we have to understand the legal precedents, we have to understand the, the business case and the financial mechanisms to move capital but we also have to understand the needs that the environment presents to us.
0: Awesome. And around the same time, you started publishing uh, several uh, works. Uh, I saw that you were a co-editor of Sustainable Innovation Impact with Kari Krasinski. You also contributed to his other book, Sustainable Investing, Revolutions in Theory and Practice. But you also published a paper incentivizing the direction of multi-capital towards I- inclusive capitalism. So what was your thought process at the time you helped up that uh, initiative? And now you're getting to work with all these different publications.
1: Yeah. And the common thread here is what are the practical barriers to moving capital? So when we set up the initiative, we set up an advisory board uh, of practitioners, banks, uh, asset managers, some large asset owners, pension funds, insurance companies. And we would meet with them quarterly and we would ask them, what are the practical barriers to the movement of capital? whether that is, uh, for example, policy mandates or legal precedent, uh, whether it is you know, establishing a business case, whether it is data quality, that board, that advisory board would give us a set of needs for research in the marketplace. Uh, and a lot of the publications from 2017 to 2020 are a reflection of those uh, needs identified by our advisory board. So we would take it on ourselves uh, to try and fish through those challenges and better understand them. So, for example, the book with Kerry Krasinski is very much kind of a sustainability implementation book. Like, what are the practicalities of implementing a sustainable investment platform? The book with Dan Esty, uh, is very much a data book uh, because what we realized was that the the challenges with data were very convoluted, very complex, and would require you know an entire book to explore through various authors rather than through an academic paper. And then the, the other paper you mentioned, the Incentivizing uh, Sustainable Finance or, or multi- in, Inclusive Capital, that came out of uh, an interesting conversation with the advisory board around the directionality of capital. So the premise being that you can focus or you can move capital towards more sustainable investments, but that does not necessarily democratize that capital. It doesn't necessarily you know, include all the stakeholders that are either impacted or benefited by that capital. And so that's more of a thought piece about how we might create structures, mostly governance and legal structures, that would allow ownership for multiple stakeholders against those multiple capitals after we are successful in moving money towards more sustainable investments. So all this kind of triggers from the, the conversations of our advisory board, as well as other faculty and, and, and thinkers here at the university. So that's where those, those publications are coming from for those three, four years.
0: Uh, nice, one of your publications in 2020 with Daniel Esty, who you mentioned previously, was titled ESG Standards, Lumen Challenges and Pathways Forward. And what I really liked is that you had identified five investment strategies or five types of investors.
1: So this is an example of our advisory board identifying to us that uh, what is needed are different types of data, different types of metrics for different types of investors. And I want to give all credit to Kerry Krasinska and his earlier work with me, because Kerry was the first person that I talked to um, that really tried to organize this space of investment types. So we built on those conversations uh, in this article to, to specifically say there are investor Strategies that have unique, uh, differentiated metrics and data needs.
0: And should we delve into these uh, different investment strategies uh, one by one, starting off with sustainable alpha investors?
1: So the alpha investor are the show me the money investors. These are investors that are trying to outperform the market. So what does an alpha investor need? They need data that is not priced by the market already, because they're looking for outperformance. So these are the investors that are focused on financial outperformance esg data for them is just the dirty unstructured you know huge data sets that will show financial performance they're not interested in the morality of you know protecting the environment or society they're interested in how the, that data indicates a risk that's not currently priced
0: next up smart beta invested so
1: smart beta investor this is the investor that generally owns a huge swath of the economy so they've got large portfolios they've got risk that is diversified across the across the economy so they're not trying to outperform the market they're trying to reduce volatility Hence the beta reference so what are they looking for they're looking for data that indicates a covariant risk so while they might look at, or, or another investor might look at, say, a mining company, a food and beverage company and say, those are different sectors. And therefore, I can diversify risk if I invest you know, across those two different sectors. And a, an ESG, smart beta investor, would look at those and say, well, both are exposed to significant water risk. So actually, I'm carrying covariant risk on the water side if I invest in those two sectors. So these investors are looking for standardized information about covariant risk from ESG factors. But again, fiduciaries not interested in the social or environmental benefit.
0: Third one is activist investor.
1: An activist investor, they think they can steer the battleship of their investment. So they'll invest in a very large company um, and then they'll try and put in either shareholder calls for action or resolutions to try and get the company to shift its pattern. And they can do that for many different reasons. It might be that they want the company to be a better citizen. More often than not, they see that there's some ESG risk that the company is not dealing with effectively. And so they're actually trying to make themselves more money by steering that battleship. But the common theme is that they invest even in companies that would be considered very dirty um, in order to move them into a more sustainable position in order to reduce that. Number four impact investor so this is the first type that kind of breaks from the initial three the impact investor wants to balance the benefit to environment society against financial returns there's a broad spectrum within that sentence so one impact investor might put the predominant weight on financial returns but also would like to know what the impact of social and environmental efforts are in which case they'd be more on the fiduciary side Other impact investors might balance that social and environmental benefit higher to the point where they might accept a lower return or lower return against benchmark in order to demonstrate greater benefit. So within the impact investing space, you can have lots of different financial strategies for return. But the common thread is that they want to measure environmental and social impact across their, their investment portfolio. And lastly, a screening investors. So this is a very traditional type. This is comes from the socially responsible investment world. Um, these are investors that purposely reduce their diversification in order to follow a moral path. So they will say, I will not invest in fossil fuels or gambling uh, or arms manufacturing, not because I think they don't make money. In fact, most of them make you know, quite good money, I'm doing it because I don't want to be involved or supporting those industries. And there's an acknowledgement that by doing that, they reduce their diversification, they're increasing their risk
0: return rate. Awesome. Now let's move on uh, to the book that you uh, co-edited with uh, Daniel Esty. uh, And uh, you had one chapter that you'd written, which is called ESG Risks Depends on Multi-Management Control Quality. Uh, And there was a particular section of that, which is the failure of ESG performance data. Could you delve into that,
1: please? Sure. We're all familiar with some of the shortcomings of ESG data. It's the time dependency is terrible, it tends not to be validated, a lot of it is subjective. But this chapter focuses specifically on how ESG data tends to be focused on historical performance. So, for example we measure greenhouse gas emissions from this last fiscal year we measure health and safety incidents or the number of fatalities Uh, we measure how many people we trained uh, over the last year and then we report this information what we're really trying to get at is how this company is going to perform in the future so this historic performance data is really just a proxy for how we think the company will do in the future. So if they have a lot of fatalities last year, then we might think, well, this company is, you know, they've got a health and safety challenge. They've got risk associated with it. But I think at the end of the day, it's all historical data that we're basing these this proxy information on. And that's a fundamental failure when it comes to ESG factors, which are changing so rapidly that past performance can, can become almost meaningless within 12 to 18 months.
0: Yeah, it's crazy how things can change uh, so rapidly Uh, what i liked in your chapter you had uh, three particular cautionary case study in different time periods 2000 uh 2015 and 2019 uh the first one is on bp why did you choose bp all three of these case
1: studies are examples of how companies had good historic data but the structures the management systems and management controls that were underlying the data or sitting next to the data uh, would have showed weaknesses if we had looked at them better. So BP, for example, they had moved shortly before the Macondo well accident in the Gulf of Mexico. They had moved to beyond petroleum, they had rebranded, they had done this for a number of years, and uh, you know they were really talking a lot about their sustainability uh, credentials they had safety incidents going on. There are little spots of safety incidents. They had the Texas City refinery. They had a leak in the Alaska pipeline in the years preceding Macondo. And what the lesson was that the historic performance on oil spill data for BP suggested that the risk was fairly controlled or fairly minimal. But an analysis of the management systems, the governance structures, the management controls, the audit procedures, et cetera, on health and safety would have you know, showed a different tale. So if an analyst was able to look at the management systems and controls associated with the company, rather than the historic performance data, it might have raised higher or bigger red flags in advance of that huge incident in the Gulf of Mexico. The
0: next up is Volkswagen.
1: So Volkswagen, this refers to the diesel gate scandal. Again. If you think through for Volkswagen, what was the nature of the risk? The nature of the risk was not the emissions themselves, that the automobiles in the United States had higher emissions. The risk was actually one of internal corruption, essentially, or that this is a company that had competing interests that they're cascading down onto their engineering team. On the one hand, to maximize performance, and on the other hand, to meet environmental criteria and really gave no choice but to put in triggers into the cars so that they could switch between testing mode and and road mode in order to do outstanding performance in terms of what the customer expected, but also to meet environmental criteria, in this case, the regulatory requirements. So the historic performance, if you were thinking diesel, what is the risk, would have been emissions data. That was absolutely meaningless compared to the nature of the risk itself, which was about internal human capital culture. What should we have been looking for is we should have been looking for how would this risk manifest and internalize for this company? Well, it's through human capital. So we need to look at culture indicators rather than historic emissions performance.
0: And lastly, Pacific gas and electric. So this
1: is an example. It's interesting because history is repeating itself actually this week. Several years ago, Pacific Gas and Electric came under heavy scrutiny for the wildfires that were happening in California and was found liable by the state and and regulators for triggering a number of wildfires due to essentially poor line maintenance and sparking. So again, what was the historic performance data? The historic performance data was you know, their health and safety data that we could look at, and they were quite strong on health and safety. They had very low rates of safety incidents uh, outside of perhaps some natural gas emergencies that occurred. But what was the nature of the risk from climate change in this case? You know, Their health and safety data didn't speak to it. Their emissions data didn't speak to it. Their renewables portfolio didn't speak to it. The risk from climate change was the risk of wildfires for them. And so the factor that we should be looking for would be the maintenance program uh, on transmission lines in, in very kind of wildfire risk areas. So lesson for all three of these, oh, and b- before I talk about the lesson, the reason I say this is repeating itself is because we just saw the wildfire in Lahaina in, in Hawaii. And again, the power company is being looked at very, very carefully this week um, because of lack of protocols, around line maintenance and the response to down lines and severe wind uh, and whether the company should have shut down operations uh, in such high wind circumstances. So the lesson from all three of these is the same, is that if you look at historic performance, that's going to be a very inadequate measure of the risk that you face as an investor. What we need to do is look at how does the ESG factor create an exposure to the company then how is that exposure going to be internalized to the company if we know how the internalization meaning how it's going to cost the company money if we know how that will occur then we can look at the control systems the governance structures etc to ensure that we mitigate that internalization.
0: So in, in chapter three of Values at Work, and also in your other publications, uh, you always try to propose solutions, uh, how we can improve ESG. And uh, I'd like to start off with the first one, which is data.
1: Yeah. So the data world is uh, has lots of room for improvement. Depending on the nature of the risk, uh, there's a variety of ways to shore up the data. So the first is that we tend to use a blanket approach on data, like more data is better. And it turns out that a lot of the data that we collect is is either proxy to what we're trying to find or peripheral to what we're trying to find. So one way to improve the data is to be very, very focused as to what data measures the risk that we're interested in. I'll use the PG&E example again. So if I understand the risk of climate changes around wildfires, then there's a number of things that I could try, and a number of data, bits of data that I could try to get. Right? I could get uh, insurance rate data. I could get um, the number of sparking in- incidents, uh, the number of maintenance hours that are put in on lines, etc. At the end of the day, though, what I really want is data that suggests that if that risk occurs, I have put in the systems to mitigate that risk. So this might be, for example, time to line maintenance. So how long does it take from an outage occurring to my crew getting out there? The number of of maintenance per year uh, for a given area. The wildfire risk normalized maintenance program. So do we have higher maintenance programs in wildfire prone areas, for example? So if I understand the nature of how the risk will occur, then I can really limit the amount of data. And then questions like, is it timely? Is it validated? Does it respond to stakeholder expectations, et cetera? All those other data questions can be mitigated because not always going to be relevant. I don't have to have instantaneous data um, for many of the risks that I face when it comes to climate change or other ESG
0: factors. I think you have many interesting perspectives on data, especially coming from your uh, environmental engineering and sustainability consulting background. Uh, But next up is ESG metrics. How how should we think about solutions from a metrics standpoint?
1: So I have a quick fix on metrics for most companies. It'll get you 80% of the way there. We, all companies do some form of risk management and assessment. So whether it's an enterprise risk management function, or if you're doing a sustainability materiality process, if you have an LCA process, there's all kinds of different places where companies will identify risks and try to figure out how we're going to control those risks. My suggestion for metrics is that the metrics that we choose when we're trying to assess the degree of risk and our mitigation of that risk, currently forget the why, And we just go to the how can so what i mean by that is that the feasibility of metrics development sometimes trumps the value of metrics development i'll give a quick example it's a little bit simple but a lot of companies for example collect scope one greenhouse gas emissions data and that's fine it's but it does not speak to the nature of the risk for climate mitigation for most companies why would climate mitigation, why does reducing greenhouse gas emissions matter financially to your company? It could be that you're being taxed on that carbon dioxide, in which case, scope one greenhouse gas emissions are fine, although you'd probably just wanna do the ones that are regulated. But most companies don't have a carbon tax or they're not part of an emissions trading scheme. So for them, the greenhouse gas emissions that they emit are not a direct cost. They're more of a reputational liability. So it's more about whether your customers are going to buy more or less of your product as a result of your emissions, or whether governments are going to consider taxing you as a result of your emissions, uh, or whether your partners are going to expect you to reduce emissions. None of those, the risk is not measured by greenhouse gas emissions scope one. Rather, you'd wanna have metrics around, you know, how do you compare against your peers? How do you compare against the emission trading scheme caps? you would want to normalize to say your market cap or your number of employees or your revenue. Intensity metrics will be a much better telling of of the risk that you face. But we tend to forget that because everyone is doing scope one greenhouse gas emissions and that's the easiest thing for me to collect. Um, But time after time, the metrics that we actually want are going to be about why and not about what can I get.
0: Uh, And lastly, regarding post solution, in the same chapter of that book, you delved a lot into standards.
1: Yes, there there's some risks that our best response is to have comparable data. So in, in other words, the risk is inherent to our performance against somebody else. So I mentioned the greenhouse gas emissions. It's one thing to say you have a million tons of greenhouse gas emissions. It's another to say that you have the least amount of greenhouse gas emissions in your sector. So one doesn't help you at all, but the other is indicative of the risk that you face. So what that requires is comparable data across your sector you have to be able to compare your emissions to somebody else so a lot of the risks that we face particularly those smart beta investors that are looking for covariance companies that are trying to benchmark anyone who is trying to link esg risk to an intangible value i.e something that is a risk that is based on perception of a stakeholder requires comparable data and this is where standards come in cannot get meaningful or reasonable comparisons unless we have standard approaches to the data collection the compilation the auditing the scope the boundary etc so that's where the value of standards for data and metrics come in fortunately or unfortunately there are a lot of standards out there some of them are very very popular some of them are very very robust but there are hundreds for for almost any given esg factor to choose from The trick again is not necessarily picking the best one, it's picking the one that most people use because the value here is in comparability, not necessarily having the perfect answer. So so
0: thank you for providing the solutions across the three main items, data metrics and standards. Now I would like to gain your thoughts on what the future of ESG could look like, especially from a balanced perspective. So first we'll look at some of the negative and then we'll transition to the positives. So uh, regarding negative, uh, the first one is, uh, you recently uh, published an article, Thoughts on the Political Backlash Against ESG Investment. What are your thoughts on the political backlash?
1: Yeah, so many of your listeners will be familiar that uh, here in the United States in particular, ESG has become a politically charged uh, topic area, kind of wrapped up in the anti-woke capitalism movement. So particularly conservative politicians have focused on ESG to say, the any asset manager that considers environmental, social governance factors in their investment decision-making is violating their fiduciary duty because ESG factors are not financially material. That is the basis of it. The results of that, it's a little unclear how much it, it's really going to slow ESG, but there are some agents, for example, state pension funds by conservative majority politicians um, that have put in limits. On how asset managers can use ESG information. There's also been a little bit of, I'd call it slowing down for some major asset managers that don't want to stick their head above the parapet and don't want to draw attention to themselves in the midst of a political backlash. So, you know, there, there has been a bit of a slowing, maybe some road bumps, um, but I think over the press has been indicating that generally ESG just continues a pace.
0: Next up, and you have a really good YouTube video uh, that people should watch, is on avoiding greenwashing pitfalls.
1: Yes, this kind of speaks to the opposite end of the political spectrum. The politicians on the left sometimes look at ESG and and argue that that asset managers promised us that we would be able to both save the environment and make money. What their criticism is that ESG has really just been making money in disguise that we never intended to save the environment, is never going to you know, the society, it was just a new way to sell you know, maximizing returns. And so this is based on the premise that ESG information is only financially material information and that none of the impact data, for example, would be considered. This one, this is also prevalent um, and people will push back against ESG or the term ESG because they feel like it's just greenwashing made by asset managers. If,
0: if I may ask you another question about greenwashing, in the video, you mentioned these internalization pathways and strategies uh, for greenwashing and m- maybe how to resolve them. Uh, could you give a few words on that?
1: Yeah, so it, greenwashing means that you're disingenuous, that you are using ESG information to sell a product but you are not actually improving the environmental and social impacts so what this boils down to is some aspects of of ESG are going to create financial materiality so a simple example I replace the light bulbs in my office uh, that saves energy I have to pay for energy so therefore it saves costs there's a very causal relationship. You know, the internalization of that cost is very clear as long as I'm paying utility bill. As I expand out of that, it gets a little bit harder to show the internalization pathway. So I'll give you another example. A company wants to save water. Um, and so it's going to put a million dollars into a water conservation uh, technology but it pays very little for that water. So their payback based on just cost would be 10, 20 years for that million dollar investment for water conservation. So why do it? Well, we do it because there's other internalization pathways other than just cost. For example, if there was a drought, the government might curtail my use of water. I'd have to shut down operations or I could no longer discharge water because of temperature constraints. And this has happened, by the way, in Europe the last three out of five years. So in that case, I am taking a bet as a fiduciary that there is a financial risk associated with an ESG factor. And, and I have to take that bet against the potential internalization pathways that are out there. So is it greenwashing to say that I'm going to invest in this technology or, or conserve water, or is it just a financial bet that may not pay off? That's where it starts to get confusing. And I think when people think about greenwashing, they look at examples like the commitment to net zero carbon emissions. For some companies, that's going to be greenwashing. They have no intention of actually achieving net zero. It's far off. Um, They're going to do whatever is financially responsible, but they they won't follow through past that. Other companies see net zero as a financial advantage. They see reputation benefits. They see kind of long-term capital benefits it's not going to be possible to tease those two apart because they're not black and white. That's not one or the other. So we'll never get rid of the greenwashing accusation. And at the end of the day, we'll even it's going to be subjective to say whether historically a company was greenwashing or not. What we have to think through as a potential investor is really about, do we agree with those internalization pathways that are driving the decision? Uh,
0: thank you for that response on uh, greenwashing. And lastly, when it comes to negatives, Uh, But you said you will try to spin it off as a positive uh, is the article on how the tools of impact investing can undermine in the global South.
1: Yeah, I've become really fascinated by this topic. So we're trying to move capital to the global South in in order to build social resilience or climate resilience. But the global South, for a variety of reasons, is a risky place to invest. Infrastructure can can be less developed. You know, loan bankruptcy rate or default rates could be higher. So on the negative side, it can be very difficult to move capital to the global south if it's not specifically impact capital. And impact capital is not scalable. You know, as we discussed before about impact can mean concessionary capital. Um, But the positive side to this is that a lot of the investments of capital in the global south actually build social resilience and that social resilience can improve the default rate. Meaning that when small companies, entrepreneurs, communities in the global south receive capital at market rates, they sometime, they'll sometimes they typically invest some of that in the infrastructure that they need for their business, whether it's in better supply chains or healthcare uh, or climate resilience or drought tolerance or whatever, because they know that they need that resilience. And by building that very resilience, they actually improve the default rates across their communities. And so there seems to be a pool of evidence developing, but not well tested, that suggests that market rate capital is mispriced when it goes to the Global South. And where we should, where we are charging say 20, 25% of when we send money at market rates to the Global South, the default rates and the return rates suggest that it should be closer to say 15 or 10% closer to what you would get in OECD country. So that's the good news, but the market hasn't quite caught up with that data because as I said, it's not tested. But I think there's a real positive line, which is we might be mispricing this debt. And if we are, then we might accelerate capital flows in the global south exponentially uh, just through better data analysis.
0: So now we've discussed uh, some of the negatives. Now let's look at some of the positive perspectives uh, that you've published before. Uh, the first one is an article titled, Better Data is Letting Companies and Investors See Trillions in Climate Risk.
1: Yeah. So this is a theme, right? The data can drive better decision making. And there's a lot of data out there that is suggesting the type of climate risk and how to mitigate that climate risk. And this is the purview of hedge funds uh, and very alpha oriented investors because these, what we're talking about here are messy, unpriced, dirty data sets. Uh, so think like you know, geospatial and satellite data or social media feed data, the shadows on floating oil tankers. You know, there's so much data that's being pulled right now around environmental and social risks. And companies, data analytic companies, are starting to analyze that data to say, Here's the nature of the risk that we see for your company or your asset on the ground. And it's time dependent, uh, and it's geographically specific, and it's internalization pathway specific. And I'll give a simple example from a company that was that was bought a few years ago. They used satellite data to assess what is the risk of electrical outlet, outage in the wake of a hurricane in the Houston area. So we see the hurricane is coming we look through the portfolio of companies that have assets on the ground in that region. And we say, uh, these companies, for example, pharmaceutical companies, they have to have electricity 24 hours, you know, seven days a week uh, because they've got pharmaceuticals on the shelf. And if it, the power goes off for any period of time, they can no longer sell those. So we can check and we can look, well, let's see what the size of their generators are. Let's see if they've got backup electricity. If they don't, Then i'm going to be very concerned for those assets that are going to lose electricity because we know that electricity will go out for an hour to a few days so that kind of really specific asset level internalization pathway specific data is allowing investors and companies to really drill down uh, on the risks that they face and there's a lot of money associated with it from these small examples like i just gave to huge examples around supply chain logistics and pinch points uh, that can have billions, even trillions of dollars worth of impact.
0: Uh, so next up on Positives is a very interesting article called the pragmatist Guide to ESG, and you have many interesting subtitles. Uh, for example, will ESG be the downfall of capitalism? Will ESG save the planet? Where's ESG going? How shall we navigate ESG in the meantime?
1: Yeah, the purpose of this article is kind of in the title. We're seeing a lot of what I'd call overreaction to ESG. You know, and that's hence the the subtitles like, is it the downfall of capitalism? Will it save the world? And the answer is, of course, not, not. None of the above. We can't rely on investors to save the world. Investors will always have to keep an eye on their on what is financially feasible. They can do a lot of the saving uh, by moving capital, but they're never going to invest purely on moral reasons. And then, yes, he's probably not going to destroy capitalism either, um, because at the end of the day, it is a financial construct. I think the article is meant for those people that want to navigate through the overreaction. And one of the key themes or takeaways from that from that article is that ESG is it's not a thing. It's not a strategy in and of itself. ESG is just a set of data. It's environmental, social impact and risk data. And investors can use that data to feed their strategies however they like. One investor might use it to maximize their financial returns. Another might might use it to try and save the world. So ESG by itself is, is just a set of data. It's, it's not useful to get too religious
0: about it. I've enjoyed this uh, interview so far. And now I'd like to move on to your non-research engagements as we've been mostly focused on your research. Uh, so the first one is your teaching engagements. Uh, you have several academic courses uh, for Yale students, but you also have programs like the MBA on sustainability, uh, a sustainable finance and investment course and Corporate Sustainability Management
1: course. Yeah, and I should distinguish those. The Yale School of Management has an executive education program, uh, which is for non-students. It's for alumni or practitioners or anyone who wants to learn from Yale without coming here to get a degree. And I work with that team a great deal. And as you say, we have a a few courses out that are online. Folks can access those on corporate sustainability, on sustainable finance, and now on, on climate change risk to not to be confused with the executive MBA, uh, which is a degree program for professionals. You come here part-time for two years, you get your MBA degree. And here at the Yale School of Management, we have a focus area in sustainability. So in your second year, you get to learn all about sustainability. And I'm the faculty director for that sustainability track
0: of that degree pro. So, so outside of academia, you have uh, some advisory uh, board positions and consultancy engagements in the private sector. Uh, some of the names include Merck, Third Economy, ArcelorMittal, Chevron, and Walt Disney Company, among others. How do you engage with the private sector? In
1: yeah, as I came from consulting before I came back to academia, and I still engage with some of my old clients if they need advice on an ad hoc basis. So I do sit on a several advisory boards, uh, like Third Economy and Merck KGaA, Darmstadt. Not to be confused with the North American Merck company. You can see you know, some of our engagement on their websites. We give me and the other advisory board members, we give advice on their sustainability strategy, some of the material risks that they face, the data and metrics that they collect, um, and try and help them uh, improve their performance over time. And then I'll also give advice to uh, other companies uh, that I've worked with in the past. So I've been a longtime uh, advisor to Chevron, um, have worked with the Walt Disney Company, mostly around... Know, materiality, uh, their reporting strategies, uh, benchmarking their, their peers, mostly just trying to learn better practices and how to in, implement those better practices.
0: Next up, which could be related to private sector, are investment firms. And you, you've held advisory roles, most notably with Zola Ventures, which is related to Prime Coalition. But also, Just Capital, uh, you're on the Scientific Advisory Board over there.
1: The Just Capital uh, effort was really interesting, really peaking several years ago. They used an approach of census building to identify financially material risks. Um, so they asked stakeholders, what are the financially material risks? And then they tried to reverse engineer the metrics to answer those risks. And what I thought was a really good practice and where I was involved was trying to convert the ask into a set of data and metrics. So for example, if the ask was, does the company have a fair wage or a living wage, trying to get data sets that indicated how much people were paid in different regions around the world against you know, what standard of a living wage, just as a simple simple example. Um, so that was my role on their advisory board. With the Prime Coalition and the Az- Azola Ventures, I'm on their impact advisory committee. So our job is to look at a potential investment and give feedback as to whether that potential investment would achieve the climate impact uh, that is hoped for by, by the prime coalition and the fund Um, which i think is still a very novel approach not only do they want high returns uh, at the prime coalition and the, and the fund um, but they want to have high you know gigaton level Uh, carbon dioxide emissions reductions through the technologies they invest in. So really, really interesting uh, approach to investing.
0: Lastly, so we've covered uh, the uh, private sector firms, investment firms. uh, And then before that, we touched on teaching engagements, but now there's uh, the governance positions in NGOs. And you're on the board of directors of uh, Save the Sound. But more importantly for this podcast is you're on the board of directors of the Global Research Alliance for Sustainable Finance and Investing. And I'd like to know your thoughts about uh, this organization, what it's aiming to do and how are business academics trying to improve a sustainability education? Because I've seen you've taken part in some surveys and you've conducted some surveys yourself.
1: Yeah. So the Global Research Alliance for Sustainable Finance and Investment, or V it's a p- tough acronym to pronounce. Yale. signed up as one of the members of the Alliance uh, several years ago. Um, In fact, Yale will be hosting the annual Graspi conference in just a week or two here. Graspi is a coalition of researchers and and research in sustainable finance. There's a dozen or more universities that are members of Graspi. They share kind of practices it's a platform for sharing research topics they have a phd committee to promote phd research initiatives in sustainable finance and investment they have their annual conference that run the, at a different university each year so yale signed up and, and as a you know as part of that membership yale has a representative on the board which i've been serving the last couple of years so that's graspy it's it's focused on research as opposed to curriculum but there is a platform to sharing curriculum if, if uh, member universities are interested. The research that you, for instance, like the research on education, sustainability and education, we did a couple of research five years apart, looking specifically at MBA students around the world. So Yale is also a member of the Global Network for Advanced Management, which is uh, 28 or 30 business schools around the world. So we surveyed all those business schools around the world about various aspects of sustainability and environment and climate change. And we wanted to know things like, how much do students care about it? How much curriculum are they exposed to about sustainability and climate change? We also wanted to know whether they would go to businesses that promoted climate change, whether it was important in their their job decision. And one of the things that we found was that there's this huge stated preference amongst business students to work for companies that they perceive as more responsible in environmental protection, climate change, and sustainability. And it turns out to be a fairly large stated margin, almost 14% potential difference in, in salary expectations. Do they actually do that when they go to the business? Do they take a pay cut in order to be at a more responsible company? I don't know. Um, but when they're at business school, they say that they will.
0: Awesome. Well, now we're into closing questions. And usually the closing questions entails personal or professional advice to uh, the listeners. And speaking of Graspi, what's your advice to future academics or researchers uh, that want to engage in sustainable finance? So, I
1: mean, the biggest advice is this field is moving really, really quickly. And there's two real needs in research. One real need for research is that we need robust analysis. This field is flooded with kind of a nice word for it inadequate research like research that is using small data sets or constrained data sets and a lot of that is because the data is difficult right i'll be very honest about that it's very difficult to get data sets that are comprehensive and can thoroughly test a question Um, but we have a lot of data sets that are very incomplete and we're drawing conclusions in the literature on incomplete information if sustainable finance is going to be integrated into mainstream finance. We're going to need more robust analysis uh, and papers in the field. The second kind of bit of recommendation is, it almost seems counterintuitive, but it is to get your research out quicker. Because the field is changing rapidly, and our understanding of sustainable finance is changing rapidly, we need to act on, on research more quickly than the publication process. So while I'm fully supportive of PhD candidates and, and researchers to go through the peer-reviewed journal process in order for you know accuracy and and robustness of methodology, I'm also quite a fan of getting out early publications so that practitioners can start to test your
0: theories in the field. The last question is more to folks that want to be more practical than academic. What's your advice for folks that want to become ESU or corporate sustainability practitioners? or they want to be involved more in the investing and uh, finance side?
1: So for those folks, the good news is that there's a ton of jobs. There's an ever-expanding number of jobs in ESG, investing in finance, from data analysts to fund manager. There's, there's lots and lots of, of opportunity out there. The key to those jobs, I think, is to, to pin your practice around a particular skill set. So it might be, for example, to get your MBA and pin your practice around, say, portfolio management theory and being very, very strong at that so that you can approach ESG without you know, confusing yourself or taking too broad of a view, but being very specific about your strategy and your approach so that you can be very clear to potential customers. Another field of knowledge I think will be very, very useful going forward is the law field or legal profession. I think lawyers are increasingly needed in the ESG space, not only to tell us what we can and can't do, but I think increasingly to tell us what does and doesn't constitute fiduciary duty. Here in the US in particular, it's a very complex web of policy, laws and legal precedent that defines fiduciary duty. And so tackling ESG factors that may have you know, differing levels of financial materiality, asset managers, asset owners, companies, chief financial officers, they're going to have to navigate that always with this background of, am I performing my fiduciary duty? Or how much fiduciary duty or responsibility do I have and to whom? And lawyers are going to be a critical part of that. So I think having kind of a, a foundation of a particular skill or knowledge set as you enter into the field is really, really useful. I really
0: appreciate this interview with you. I think the list will gain a lot out of it and all the publications will be referenced in the show notes. Have a great day in Connecticut. Thank you. Really appreciate being on and I really appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Climate Finance Podcast. For future episodes, please join our mailing list on www.cdc.com climatefinance.xyz. I repeat, www.climatefinance.xyz. See you at the next episode.